from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Dr. Elizabeth Bowen on September 26, 2016. Beth is a physician, educator, writer, and world traveler. In 1992, she was elected National President of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and since 2001 has represented the organization International Society of Doctors for the Environment. As a result, she describes herself as an activist physician. She's currently developing a biography of Dr. Magdalene Carney, an African-American educator that had profound impact in her field. Beth explains in the interview how she used Facebook to gather stories and photos for the biography. I started the interview by asking Beth where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Delaware, a very small state, so small that Candid Camera put up a sawhorse one Sunday on a quiet country road, and when someone pulled up from Pennsylvania, they said, you'll have to wait, Delaware is full. <laughs> and they very cooperatively pulled over, and at five minutes when someone drove out of Delaware, they said, okay, you can come in now, just one car. That's <laughs> so, great. <laughs> right, very small state. So I was there the first 18 years of my life for the most part. And what was religious life like growing up? My parents became Unitarians, which are very open-minded and very, I think, very receptive to multi-faith exposure for the youth. Our religious youth group did visit other places of worship, such as synagogues and mosques, and had numerous multi-faith conversations, for example, about civil rights. It was a very progressive community, religiously. I'm grateful for that. And how old were you when your parents became Unitarian? I was in second grade, age seven. All right, so most of your growing up years then. That's right. And what were your interests growing up? I was very interested in horses, and I spent a great deal of time outdoors, also in music, and I play guitar and sing. And mm -hmm. so when it was too dark to ride my horses, I would play guitar and sing, mostly quiet folk. Nice. And that was also helpful in terms of shaping my interest with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and mm. Joan Baez, and Judy Collins, and various activists during the late 1960s and early 1970s. And when you went to university, I noticed that you studied psychology? Yes, I studied psychology and environmental biology. Interestingly, I maintained a strong interest in both of those areas, the area of environmental biology has become a global concern as people recognize the issues such as the global climate concerns. Right. And that has become a part of my work professionally as well as in activism. For instance, I attended the United Nations Conference on Climate in 2009, and the outcome was to anticipate migrants, hundreds of millions of migrants, some of them due to climate. It was an interesting insight in what to anticipate in the decades that we're in now and the decades to come. 
how is it that you were drawn toward those subjects at university? I had thought of becoming a physician, but because of my interest in horses, I had worked for two summers in high school as a veterinarian, which proved very useful, and I found it very compelling. However, as I became more interested in humanitarian concerns, I decided it would be more praiseworthy to become a human physician. So I realized outside of pediatrics, a great deal of adult medicine involves, and even family medicine, has to do with psychology. For example, in family medicine, it's estimated that at least half of the patients come because they're under excessive stress. And the stress is psychological, but has definite physical effects, high blood pressure and heart conditions and ulcers and such that are related to excessive stress. I did my training in family medicine when I decided to go into medical school. In the last seven years, I've concentrated mainly on pediatrics, what's called after-hours pediatrics, when the kids tend to get sick in the early evenings and on weekends. And that has given me opportunities to work closely with parents and families, parents, grandparents, and, and the kids together who arrive sick and in immediate need. So that's been very gratifying. But has also accentuated my recognition of the importance of prevention. So you're a Baha'i. What, what is your story on running into the Baha'i faith and becoming a Baha'i? So I learned of the Baha'i faith at college. 1969, I was intrigued by, one, the optimism and the attitude that there are practical solutions to all kinds of problems, including so-called social problems such as racism, which also are spiritual problems. That intrigued me a great deal. The Unitarians are very open to considering such problems, but not nearly as optimistic about finding enduring solutions as the Baha'is are. So I began to read about the faith and to attend meetings that I was able to attend at college. And I was very pleased to realize that the Baha'is do not allow any proselytizing. So I recall one of my questions as a college student was, are you people going to try to convert me? And the immediate reply was, no, if you wish to be converted, you have to convert yourself. And it's hard work. <laughs> so, and I never felt any pressure whatsoever from any of the Baha'is to join, although I felt welcome and had a sense of belonging because of our shared interest in issues like eliminating war and eliminating poverty, eliminating racism, and the mm. fact that there seemed to be pragmatic approaches. Mm. So I investigated independently for about six months, read everything I could find, from my standpoint, it, I was able to answer a lot of my questions by reading and also asking people questions about practical issues in the community. And at what point in your college career did you become a Baha'i? Was it midway or near the end? I would say it was midway. I chose to take a so-called junior year abroad. I heard about it in freshman year and became a Baha'i in the spring of freshman year. Becoming Baha'i simply involves signing a document basically saying that I do believe in the principles of this faith and that there is a founder whose name is Baha'u'llah, which means the glory of God. There is an administration and there are certain rules. For example, one rule is that only Baha'is can contribute to Baha'i funds. If other people want to give money, that money is strictly um, given to charity for general humanity, 
not to any specific Baha'i activity. So mm -hmm. that was another confirmation of the protection against corruption that's built into the Baha'i administrative system. So it was the end of first year that I became a Baha'i. Then I decided to travel and visit Baha'i communities in Europe and did that for 18 months through about 40 countries with another Baha'i youth who was also taking a year off from her studies. And she happened to be from Iran and fluent in Persian and Arabic. So we had quite a bit of cross-cultural experience visiting and staying with families and Baha'i communities throughout Europe. So what did you do when you did travel to these Baha'i communities throughout Europe? Well, we had scheduled it in advance through Baha'i administrative institutions. There, as you know, are no clergy in the Baha'i faith. So any local community that has nine or more Baha'is elects what's called a local spiritual assembly. And that group of nine people conducts the affairs of that community and makes arrangements for, for example, children's classes and weekly devotional meetings and so forth. Working through that administration in Europe, we scheduled travel. I happened to play guitar and sing, and we would do like coffee houses, sometimes in people's homes, sometimes in public coffee houses, and then follow it with discussion, open discussion of whatever issues came up. It was remarkable how well organized it was. And my friend had a Volkswagen, a bug, and a sleeping bag and small suitcase. And we traveled like that for a year and a half. Wow. It, all throughout England, Scotland, Ireland, the Outer Hebrides, the, the, the Outer Islands surrounding England, which interestingly is where the Christianity was introduced through the Outer Islands surrounding England, for those who know early Christian history. Mm. And we visited Baha'i communities in those places and also went to large youth conferences in Padua, Italy, and in Germany, where more than a thousand Baha'i youth gathered at each of those conferences with lots of music and celebration and inspirational speeches about the concept of building a new world civilization that we see a lot of conflict and destruction in our current media. But there's another process going on that may be less visible, which is constructing unity and unified systems of collaboration, working together to solve problems and to create new solutions. Did becoming a Baha'i and your travels those 18 months influence the direction of the rest of your education? Very much so, yes. When I came back, I was accepted to University of Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, which is in western Massachusetts, about two hours by car west of Boston. And at that time, there are about 400 Baha'is in that region, which on the map is called the Pioneer Valley. Of, of Western Massachusetts. And I was involved in the School of Education. And my focus was on how to educate people in public health, how to stay healthy. So I did a master's and doctorate in education. And the focus was on child health through parent and teacher education. How do you educate parents and teachers to help kids stay healthy and to teach them how to take responsibility for their own health? and safety. For example, simple things like seat belts that we take for granted in this country. But when I visited Bolivia, I found that the leading cause of death was car accidents and worked in collaboration with doctors and nurses in that country to create a law that was actually done through a university 
to create a, a national law requiring seat belts and enforcement of seat belts. And that one law, which took three years to get on the books, became the source of saving more lives than everything else that was possible to do within the strictly medical system mm. with heart disease and cancer and so forth. More lives were saved by seat belts than was possible to save through traditional medical channels. Wow. Yeah, so they're very interesting. I think the travels open my perspectives to many different ways of approaching problems and solving them. And then you went to med school after that? After doing a master's and doctorate in education, I worked with a physician in New Haven, Connecticut, and we asked the other doctors to send us those that they could not help. And almost any honest doctor will tell you they're five or 10% of their patients, they're not for some reason or other not able to reach or able to solve their concerns. So they would refer us their most difficult patients. And we would do research um, which for which we had funding the patient didn't have to pay for on vitamin and mineral deficiencies and heavy metal toxicities, lead, for example, copper, mercury, arsenic, that were not being looked at in general, but are sometimes the cause of, for example, learning difficulties and behavior difficulties sometimes are related to heavy metal toxicity, as well as, of course, occupational exposure. And after doing that for two years and seeing hundreds of patients in clinic with these types of issues, under the direct supervision of a physician, I decided to go to med school, which I did at Jefferson in Philadelphia. Jefferson School of Medicine is in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mm. Then I chose family medicine for residency training because it equips the doctor to handle people of all ages. And also, if you want to influence the children, it's helpful if you can also influence the parents. So that training I did and finished that in 1990 and then moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and worked on the faculty of Morehouse School of Medicine, which is predominantly African-American. I'm Caucasian, and what my African-American friends say, melanin challenged or chromatically <laughs> challenged. As I, I have been immersed in African-American culture since 1990 and was full-time on the faculty there for seven years and then part-time for many more years, of mm. roughly half-time on faculty and the other half time doing international health work. Mm. And Atlanta is a good place for that because of the airport and the Centers for Disease Control. And that type of work I've now in more than 90 countries, actually and, visiting those countries and working on mostly public health and Baha'i community projects. Now, I noticed on your bio that you call yourself a physician activist. Maybe you could explain why you call yourself that. Okay. In 1992, I was elected to serve as national president of a group called Physicians for Social Responsibility. That's a group of 50,000 U.S. physicians whose mission is to prevent violence and reduce violence and the causes of violence and to reduce the availability of weapons, both local and global, particularly weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, and chemical, and also to create sustainable environments with environmental justice. And environmental justice is defined as having access to clean, safe water, air, and food, and a safe enough place to work and play from an environmental standpoint and how it directly interacts with health. 
I served on that national board for nine years and represented that group at several United Nations level meetings. And since 2001, represented a partner uh, professional organization called International Society of Doctors for the Environment. They both have websites, by the way, the Physicians for Social Responsibilities, PSR.org, O-R-G, and the International Society of Doctors for the Environment, which is a federation of professional medical groups in many countries, is ISDE.org. And since 2001, I've been one of a handful of representatives at the UN in New York for global health issues related to the environment, such as fracking, for example. You might have learned that last week Germany banned fracking permanently. There'll be no fracking because of its infringement on public water supply, because it frequently disrupts and destroys the public water supply. And they've taken up a number of other issues also. So it's worked from the sort of grassroots level of actually analyzing people's blood in New Haven in the 1970s and 80s to now being in a position having served environmental health issues for decades to offer policy that's protective of the public health. So the activism part is how to reach through positions for social responsibility. The aims were to reach the general public with public education. You know, one example of that would be with a handgun, you are not safe or you're less safe with a gun. It's more likely someone in your immediate environment will commit suicide with that gun or that someone will remove the gun from you and use it to shoot you. So people have the illusion they're safer with a gun when in fact all the public health studies have shown that that's false, especially for women. So those sorts of things will be directed to the public and to the physicians so they could educate their patients and to the policymakers so they could make informed decisions based on science and on really responsible public health studies. So that's the activism part, is how do you translate that piece of information, like seatbelts save lives, into making it a national or international law and enforcing it so that you can then document how many lives were saved by that one step. In addition to all of that, you're also a writer. Yes. The past couple of years, in addition to practicing medicine roughly half-time, I've been writing a biography of a woman named Magdalene Carney, who shared an office with me for five years uh, during my graduate studies in education at the University of Massachusetts. She has passed on in 1991 and was a very remarkable person who arose from a rural upbringing in rural Tennessee on a farm an hour west of Nashville, where she was the eldest of eight children. Her mother had to leave school in third grade, and her father had to leave school in sixth grade to bring in crops to feed the other children in the family. And her father's father had been released from slavery at age 17. Despite the many challenges, Magdalene Carney managed to seek education and to be recognized for her constructive role in the civil rights movement, such that she received a grant to go to graduate school that covered her tuition for five years and made it possible for her to earn a doctorate in education. 
And one of the issues she focused on was how to prevent and eliminate prejudice, defining prejudice, for example, racial prejudice, as an emotional commitment to something that is false. One example I can give, she did a lot of mentoring of children and communicated well with children of all ages. And one day a seven-year-old child was walking to school on her first day uh, in Israel. And the other child with her said, are you one of the chosen people? And this seven-year-old child said, I don't know, I'll ask mom and dad and I'll tell you tomorrow. And the girl who'd raised the question said, I don't think you are chosen. And this young friend of Mag Carney said, well, why is that? And she said, because your skin is too dark. These are two seven-year-olds having a conversation on the walking to the first day of school. And this little girl said, I do know the answer to that. God doesn't care so much about my skin. God wants me to have a clean heart. And she said, I'm afraid I need to tell you this. I'm afraid your heart has a little bit of dirt on it. And so she corrected her friend lovingly and then went over and explained this to Mag, who was a, like an auntie to her, not a blood relative, but a close family, extended family friend. She was able to you know, defend herself, uh, this child who had somewhat darker skin, and also to reach out and help to enlighten her friend that she might have a little dirt on her heart. <laughs> uh, but all of that with loving unity and not letting it divide them or separate them. Right. So Mike Carney's made that part of her doctoral studies in how to train teachers who are both competent and compassionate and who can assist children to both prevent and overcome prejudice which they're confronted, whether it's racial or religious or whatever sort of divisive ideas they might encounter. Mm -hmm. I knew that she had traveled widely and that many people had a chance to meet Matt Carney, but I didn't know how I could round up that material. So out of curiosity, I put a page on Facebook, which is simply called Mag Carney Stories, and asked if you have any photos or stories or press releases about her, please send them, thinking that maybe 20 people might <laughs> send photos, or maybe her extended family or somebody. And 250 people did mm. in the first year. And 750 people joined. Oh it's a, on Facebook, you can join. And that meant that they wanted to see the photos and they wanted to see any new posts and any new updates that anyone had sent in from anywhere in the world. Two years into that project, it's still going to become a physical book, a biography in book form, both a physical book and an e-book and also an audio book. But there are 95,000 words on the Facebook page and more than 250 photos that people have shared from all around the world. And the mm. members who've joined have come from all around the world. Magdalene Carney was a Baha'i herself, right? Yes, that's right. She became a Baha'i in 1962, and she had been uh, teaching in public schools in Nashville, Tennessee. And she had met a professor who was supervising a student teacher who was watching Mag Carney teach in her classroom. And this professor, whose name was Dr. Sarah Martin Pereira, felt that Mag might be curious about the Baha'i faith. So she gave Mag a pamphlet, just a four-page pamphlet called Modern Religion for Modern Man. Mag read this. It stated the purpose of religion and outlined the essential features of this new religious system called the Baha'i faith and invited the reader to investigate its principles. 
and Mag wrote, by the time I finished reading, this is a four-page pamphlet, mind you, I believed in the new system, the Baha'i faith. Unimaginable joy flooded my heart. She became a, a Baha'i and embraced the faith wholeheartedly. And she also began serving the faith actively in the southern states. At that time, she lived in Tennessee and then Mississippi. In 1970, she was elected to serve on the National Spiritual Assembly, which any community that, as I mentioned before, has nine Baha'is, adults, nine or more adult Baha'is, has an annual election in which they elect what's called a local spiritual assembly, a governing council for their community. And any nation that has five or more of those elects what's called a national spiritual assembly for their whole country. And in 1970, she was elected to serve on the National Spiritual Assembly as one of nine people from all across the United States. She was elected annually until 1983 to serve in that capacity. Actually, for five of those years, she served full-time as the Assistant Secretary General of the National Spiritual Assembly. And then she was appointed to move to Haifa, Israel, to serve a center called the International Teaching Center, where she was one of nine people to focus on teaching the principles of the Baha'i faith, which relate to the oneness of humanity, eliminating all forms of prejudice, unity and diversity, and the importance of universal education and literacy. And in that capacity, she also traveled widely, globally. In 1985, she was one of two people to lead a delegation to the United Nations Conference on Women in Nairobi, Kenya. In 1989, she gave a keynote speech for an international Baha'i Women's Conference in the Netherlands. She passed away in 1991, and there's now an institute in her honor in West Palm Beach, Florida, called the Magdalene Carney Baha'i Institute, and carries forward educational work, especially with children and youth, but also with adults, along those lines of how do you raise up people who will be competent, I guess you call it their emotional quotient, as well as their intellectual quotient, in dealing with unity, dealing with diversity by creating unity. To give an example of her determination, when she was nine years old, she was determined to go to school despite a blizzard. In western Tennessee, they do have real snowstorms. <laughs> and her father lifted her up onto a large plow horse, wrapped her feet and legs in burlap bags to protect her from frostbite, and off she went into the blinding snow. And she and the teacher were the only ones to make it to school that day. The mm. teacher knew she was coming, so the teacher knew <laughs> she better get there because she knew Mag wasn't going to miss even one day of school, even mm. in a huge snowstorm. Mm. So Mag understood, even as a young child, that education, she wrote herself, I privately vowed to educate myself so I would be able to increase our resources and thereby give our family a little relief from dire poverty. Mm. I mentioned her father's father had been released from slavery at age 17. He had 20 acres and a mule, and her father and mother, along with Mag and her seven brothers and sisters, she was the eldest of eight, built that 20-acre farm up to a 90-acre farm, which is still a working farm in western Tennessee, an hour west of Nashville. She was very competent, even as a child and youth, in understanding the need for hard work to achieve and to thrive. Mm, that's a great story. 
so this is a work in progress. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. So. There are two publishers who have committed to publishing it in book form. So we're hoping that within a year it'll be it'll be available as a physical book. Right now, listeners can get it if they are involved at all in Facebook. And the address, I guess you'd say, would be facebook.com forward slash groups slash Mad Carney Biography. Okay. Or they could look at my page, which would be Beth Bowen, and there are links to it from there. And I would invite any listener to check it out to find out the progress and also to have a look at the photo albums. That's probably the quickest way you can get a feeling for it. Mm. And there are some summaries in there, two or three page summary articles about Mag Carney and mm. why she can be really exemplary. And particularly this time of so much racial tension, part of why she received a scholarship to permit her to do a doctorate was that she led a nonviolent integration of a high school in Mississippi, Canton, Mississippi, in 1968, 1969. There was so much tension that when the schools found they would need to integrate, there was violence. And she was able to quell that violence. And when they put her in charge of collaborating the integration, she was able to create enough vision for unity, for people to come together peacefully and to accomplish the integration with no further violence. Do you know how she did that, Beth? Yeah, that's part of what's in the book. So you have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Part of it was talking to the students, uh, expecting them to behave like responsible adults, high school students, and uh, give them leadership positions in, in student councils and student assemblies and so forth to uh, provide vision for the direction of how it's going to be a win-win if we are able to bring this together. Yeah, it really is fascinating. It's extremely relevant right now in our current situation in the United States. Right. You've told some stories from the book already, but I don't know. Did you want to share an excerpt? Well, okay. This could be just a brief one from some of what we've just gone through. Dr. Carney's professional work and publications focus on the education of competent and compassionate teachers, the role of ideals in human development, including emotional development, and the education of children and youth. She believed prejudice was an emotional commitment to a falsehood, and thus prevention and treatment of prejudice required reaching and re-educating both the mind and the heart. When she traveled widely in Africa, Europe, and many island nations, her purpose was to encourage the intellectual, spiritual, moral, and social development of growing Baha'i communities. She had a special interest in education of women for literacy so that they could encourage their children to learn to read as well, boys and girls. And one of the Baha'i principles is that education of girls is so important that it takes precedence over education of boys who also need education. Even though the Baha'i faith began in Iran in the 1800s, the Baha'is at that time, we're told if you can't afford to educate your sons and daughters, it's more important to educate the girls because most of them will become mothers. And therefore, the future of their children will depend on their having had an opportunity for education. Yeah, quite yeah, a radical idea radical of, uh, from uh, yeah. Iran in the 1800s. Exactly. It was radical then, and it's still radical. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah. And she also said... And I, just to quote her, she said, my parents placed a weighty responsibility on me early on 
They expected me to set the proper example for my brothers and sisters in all matters pertaining to moral and wholesome living. She was also known for having a great personality and great sense of humor and was loved in part for her ability to bring joy, create joy and unity in whatever setting she found herself. I did see her sometimes with preschool children. And one time she was in a rural community in Connecticut and a little boy, four years old, came up and he said, hey, you're black. And he said, is that like chocolate? And he was so excited. He'd never seen a black person in his life. And she handled them so lovingly and so sweetly. It was very clear that they had a heart-to-heart connection. She was very gifted with children and youth. So she had a lot of compassion for those that were innocently ignorant. Yes, exactly. And she said, for instance, when she was traveling in Africa, one country she visited was Swaziland, which is in southern Africa, next to the country of South Africa. And she was in a rural village, and they were going to do basically a study circle about spiritual matters. And one of the elder women said, I'm having difficulty with this concept on page 37. And Mag said they spent the whole evening on that spiritual concept on page 37, the book called The Book of Certitude. And Mag was so impressed with that. It touched her heart because she realized all of us have some kind of prejudice, whether it's for age or religion or race or gender or whatever. And she said it really touched her heart that here was a very sincere elder who was literate, but was having difficulty grasping a difficult mystical spiritual concept and had the courage to admit it in the presence of a distinguished international visitor. And they all sat down, opened the book and worked together to try to uh, illuminate it for all of their sakes. So it's, I think it's another bounty of not having clergy. The idea, if you're requiring universal literacy, and that's one of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith is independent investigation of truth. And in order to do independent investigation of truth, it is helpful if one is literate and can read and write. So often that's one of the first priorities when people enter or begin to establish Baha'i communities to be able to strengthen their ability to read and write and to understand reality independently of the opinions that are expressed around them. And so you're entitled to your own opinions. I have one last question for you. What do you think your life would have been like if you had not run into the Baha'i faith back when you were in college? I think that's an excellent question. Encountering the Baha'i faith has caused tremendous positive, constructive transformation for me. It gave me a framework of being able to investigate independently and to see a way to envision the dawn of a new civilization, that it is quite clear that there's collapse of the current structures and ways of doing things. But it's not as clear to see that a new system is arising. For example, abolish war. There's a statement called the promise of world peace, where the Baha'i position is stated that peace, world peace, is not only possible, it is inevitable. And just encountering that and coming to believe it through logic and and faith is a real shift in paradigm. 
my two issues in college were how to eliminate war and racism. And the Baha'i Faith has prescriptions for approaches to both of those with the idea that the central principle is the oneness of humanity. And if you take the concept that let your vision be world embracing, from that perspective, it is possible to solve many problems that are otherwise intractable. And the idea that humanity is being transformed from a turbulent adolescence to a maturity and the sign of maturity will be acceptance of the oneness of humanity. So that whoever I meet, wherever I am in the world, I recognize as a member of my extended family and approach them accordingly. For example, if you look at the United States Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I sometimes ask, what if it had said life, liberty, and the pursuit of service, as mm. it's in service, such as public service, freely offered, that one can find happiness. One does not pursue happiness and find it directly. Happiness is an outcome of meaningful service. And similarly, as a physician, I am a practicing physician and do that roughly half time, you're constantly confronting suffering. And one of the Baha'i ideas is suffering is necessary quality of human life, but you have to strive to make it meaningful suffering, to find what is the meaning in this suffering. And then that enables you to transmute some suffering and to avoid some meaningless suffering so that it, it provides very keen ethical uh, tools to evaluate what goes on in medicine and public health. The idea that universal teacher appears roughly every thousand years. And as Christ said, had you known Moses, you would recognize me. I have many things to tell you, which you cannot bear. How be it when he who is the spirit of truth is come and he will lead you into all knowledge. Baha'is believe that the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, whose name means the glory of God, is that spirit of truth who is offering direction for humanity for this thousand years. We believe there'll be more teachers with identical golden rule that the central spiritual teachings are eternal, but the social teachings change depending upon the needs of the age. And this faith brings the teaching of equality of women, which is not a principle of previous revelations. The full equality of women is unique to the Baha'i faith. Just applying that one principle, you remove immense amounts of injustice throughout the world, including the United States, to give equal opportunity for women and girls, for equal pay, equal opportunity for education, and equal protection. Uh, and safety, freedom from violence. Those will be huge, constructive revolutions, peaceful mm. revolutions. But to get back to your question, it has transformed my life tremendously. Was one reason I work so diligently is I do believe that these principles make a difference, and it is possible to discover and apply solutions that do make things better individually and in the community and in the world at large. And it's also a deep source of happiness to know that it's possible to expand happiness personally 
without disadvantaging anyone else, without having dominating other people. For example, to eliminate the extremes of wealth and poverty is actually as liberating for the people on the wealthier end of the spectrum as it is for people in, in poverty. And it helps to bring people at all levels out of oppression, whether they're suffering as oppressed or the oppressor. Everybody's playing roles in both those sides of the equation. We often find ourselves in one or the other or both. Well, Beth, thank you so much for sharing your work with us and your perspective on the Baha'i faith. Well, thank you for this opportunity, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Elizabeth Bowen, a Baha'i activist physician and biographer who is currently developing the biography of Dr. Magdalene Carney. You can find her work on the biography on the Facebook page, Mag Carney Biography. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Mag Carney Biography. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
that God may open thy spiritual eye. Thou must supplicate unto God, pray to and commune with him at midnight, saying, O Lord, I have turned my face unto thy kingdom of one day am immersed in the sea of thy mercy. Oh Lord, enlighten my sight by beholding thy light in this dark Make me happy by the wine of thy love in this wonderful age. 
I call And open before my face The doors of thy heaven So that I may see The light of thy glory And become attracted To thy beauty Verily, thou art the giver, the generous, the merciful, the forgiving, the forgiving. The forgiving, the forgiving, the forgiving, the forgiving, the forgiving. Forgiving This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.